Okay, good night. So I'm speaking to Dr. Ray Gaffor, who is such a good friend of mine. I feel so honored, Ray, and thanks for being here again. He is a consultant urologist, and he works many places, including his private practice, which is on Tenrapon Road, and you can get to him there. This wonderful business does not only urology, but so many other things. And in addition to all of that, of course, he's a consultant graduate at Kingston Public Hospital, so he has a lot of experience. He's been practicing a long while. He's done a lot of good work. I mean, and then he's my friend, but certainly I just want to throw all of that out there. So welcome, Ray, again, and thanks. Thank you, Ryan. I'm really excited to be here and to have the opportunity to talk about a topic that really makes men nervous. When you say prostate cancer, men literally start shaking in their knees. Exactly. It's so important, you know, and um, I'm I'm finding that more and more it's the women that are getting men to start the conversation. So I think it's time that we do our part and let's get the ball rolling. Yeah, so uh, so I'll just give you a scenario because this happened really recently. Somebody close to me, and it's probably what you're saying. His wife forced him, I don't say forced, but strongly encouraged him to do his, we call it executive profile, including a prostate. And it was, I think, about 10. And it persisted above that. And it's the, the essence of it, he... End up seeing specialists and end up doing what we call a biopsy, which we'll get into all of this. And later, um, elected to do a procedure. Now, how this gentleman, I must admit, he was not, was fairly good with his blood work because he has some other chronic illnesses, hypertension, diabetes. So he was, I believe, or is in his 70s. So sound bad but how do you feel about when we should go about doing these testing what testing is on that kind of thing maybe we could start there right so the blood test that you are talking of the psa the prostate specific antigen this is a chemical that is released by the prostate um, and we use it as a marker to determine, are you at risk for having a prostate cancer? So if it's elevated, then there is a risk something could be happening. Um, it is also elevated in other things, infection, um, just getting older and having an enlarged prostate. So by itself, it doesn't mean that there's a cancer. We have, if, if, it's, if there's a suspicion, either the PSA is abnormal or when we feel the prostate, it's abnormal then we go on to do what you mentioned, the prostate biopsy, which is a simple enough test. It's a minor procedure to pinch off pieces of the prostate and send it to the lab, look at it under the microscope and see if there is indeed a cancer, and that's what confirms it. Now, um, why would we do this? The whole point is to detect that there is or is not a cancer. Um, you should note that the test itself is not 100%. It can miss some cancers, but it is... The it is the only confirmatory test that we have. Now, when you mention the age of the gentleman, he's 70. Generally, we check for prostate cancer if you have at least 10 things, then it is worth it to check for a cancer. The reason being 
that prostate cancer is so slow growing that it takes about 10 years from when it develops to when it will metastasize or spread beyond the control of the prostate and to, to the rest of the body and pose a threat to your life. So there are many tables and tabulations that we use to determine do you actually have a 10-year life expectancy. The average life expectancy in Jamaica is somewhere in the early in the 80s. So by and large, a thumb, a rule of thumb, I should say, is that at about 75, we stop checking. Having said that, I have patients who are 80, 82, and in great shape. Um, if you did an executive profile, they've got no um, cholesterol issues. It, when they go to their echo, um, they're in great shape. So these men, I'd say, and, and they've got longevity in the family. You know, their their father lived to 90-something and 100. You know, so, so when you put the numbers in, that man is different from a man who is 60 and who has another cancer or who has bad, bad heart disease um, he's got uncontrolled diabetes, he's morbidly obese, and this man, he walks up two flights of stairs and he has chest pain. So, you know, you look at it on an individual basis. The patient that you speak of, diabetes and hypertension by itself, and, um, you know, at 70 years of age, I probably would offer this patient a, a, a prostate screening test. So I would do his PSA, um, as is recommended by all the international guidelines, check his prostate, you know, with a physical exam. And um, in Jamaica, we advocate that at the age of 45, we start checking for prostate cancer until you are um, within that 10 years life expectancy, which rule of thumb is about 75 years of age. I should note that in this day and age where we are doing special tests to determine if you have a genetic predisposition to prostate cancer, and you do, so, for example, somebody in your family has had prostate cancer and it was aggressive, or they so you do the test, um, they check your genes, and you are positive, then you should start screening at age 40. But other than that, men, Caribbean men, men who are of African descent, and some other high-risk factors, we start four to five. If you're from a low-risk group or you're white and Caucasian, 50. And then every year until you know, you are at that 75 years of age. So this gentleman you mentioned, I think it would have been appropriate to have done his PSA and checked him for prostate cancer risk. All right. So I'm going to tell you the outcome of that in a minute. But since we're here, I think we need to, and we had spoken about this when we are messaging. A lot of people ask me about this examination. And I, you know, I tell you the truth, at my practice, I just don't enter the discussion and I just, I just go to the blood test. Now, if, as uh, when I was doing to reading prior to this, I noticed that if uh, one of the things you can, if you feel the nodule, if you're convinced, that's really something that we use as compelling evidence and show some uh, to some other interesting tests. So, do you, how do you feel about doing that digital? I mean, do you press it or do you, do you not? Or? I do. I offer it. I I advise men who come in and they're a bit hesitant um, that there are many times when the PSA is normal and you only detect something when you feel the prostate. Now, the prostate is an, what's called an accessory sex gland, which means it's not necessary for reproduction, but it does have a significant role in keeping sperm liquid and alive. 
So um, it's located in the lower tummy in the pelvis, and it is most accessible um, for, 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 for the, the clinician to palpate it or feel it through the rectum. So we put a finger in the rectum and palpate it. Now, men get very nervous when you talk about this kind of thing. I can assure you that I have probably had one or two patients where this was found to be a painful experience. Okay, not one or two, but, you know, um, certainly less than 10 patients and a handful of patients. And they probably, they had acutely infected prostates. And that's why it was painful. The majority of the times it may be uncomfortable. And the majority of men, um, when it's done, they say, doc, that was it. You're done. It's literally seven or eight seconds. Um, and um, it, it, it is at worst uncomfortable, as I said, and um, not, uh, not the, a very invasive test. Um, but it is important, in my opinion, because there are roughly 20 or 30 percent of the time when a cancer is detected by feeling the prostate, when the PSA is negative or normal. And conversely, about 60 to 70 percent of the time, the PSA is abnormal and the prostate feels normal. So that's why we use them together. Now, Ryan, you and I both know we work in Jamaica and we know that the 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 um the reluctance that men have to do in a test. What I will say is if that is your um if that is your boundary, if that is what is stopping you from testing for prostate cancer, do the blood test. Just do the blood test and um, let us see what happens after that. You are not getting the full screen, I will tell you, but um, at least something is better than nothing. You know, so that's that's how my approach to it is, um, Ryan. So in, in terms of, since we're talking about this, the, the types, the fancy ultrasounds and even the MRs that, you know, I have, um, let's say, a permanent urologist in my family, you know, teenagers from time to time. <laughs> And the, those are still aren't done transrectal, though, aren't they? Right. So, so the the ultrasound can be done transabdominally or transrectally. But I'll tell you that the ability of the ultrasound to pick up a cancer is not very good. What the ultrasound picks up as dark areas or bright areas can be any number of things. It can be abscesses. It can be what's called calcification, which is just a normal part of your body getting older. Um, so I use that with a grain of salt. And for me, the two things, and in this day and age, three things that tell me the patient needs to have a biopsy is either abnormal PSA or the prostate feels abnormal. Or for one reason or another, we've done an MRI um, and it is it shows that there's a high risk of a cancer being there. Um, the the MRI is um, it's done. Uh, we don't use an endocoil very much anymore. Uh, endo uh, a rectal endocoil, so it's not something that goes into the rectum. Um, and there are we don't use it as a screening test. Reason being that it one it's expensive. Number two, it's time consuming to interpret. There are only a handful of experts, um, expert radiologists who have uh, really got 
a high volume of experience with this. And so, you know, we can't inundate them with um, uh, MRIs for every single man out there who's over 45. They wouldn't get through that volume of work. So we pick and select the cases to do an MRI. And if the MRI says there might be something there, then we'll proceed to a biopsy. All right, but it is quite expensive. Um, it, if you have insurance, then it's not so bad, but um, it's it's far more expensive than the blood tests. It's not as accessible. And um, again, you need expertise. Um, uh, um, uh, you need expert um, um, uh, personnel to interpret the MRI. This is exactly the point that with all the money in the world, we're still up for the trade and true. You know, we don't go there in terms of unit. And I believe there's only one institution, as far as I understand, that the type that you guys actually like, the, the type of MR, that particular, which, well, we, you know, I'll let you speak to it later, but they, they get, they're, they're very popular. I think it's elite, if I'm not mistaken. And then, right, there's, there's elite and there's also Winchester MRI. Those two institutions are using a very high um, resolution, a T3 MRI to get really good um, results. Gotcha. All right. So it, it we also mentioned something and Christine, what you're saying, but I'll just bring this up because I'm sure people will encounter it. There was some discussion. I don't remember. I've been in general practice after a while now about when USPTF, the United States, had some recommendations, I believe it was against doing the PSA, and later they had to re revise that. And do, do you have any, could you elaborate a little bit on that, what, what they were thinking? Yes, yeah, so um, there are a lot of nuances to those studies. This was a These were observational studies, which means that um, it was not the highest level of evidence. There were many nuances to it. A lot of the patients actually um, were one not really fit for PSA screening. So the screen men who would not have benefited from it. They were old and they probably would not have lived for 10 years. So you didn't see that benefit of screening. Um, so that was one thing about it. And um, a lot of them were not actually screened per se. They were Their cancers were discovered for other reasons, they were symptomatic. So they were already having problems and which again, lessens the impact of screening. Screening by definition is the detection of a disease before you become symptomatic at a stage where it's curable and long before it causes problems. So that was the issue with the United States Preventative Task Force study that initially showed no um, no benefit to screening. And in this day and age, um, we are picking up prostate cancers a lot earlier. We're picking them up when they're curable. We have seen a significant, what we call a stage migration, which means 25 years ago before PSA was being used, the majority of men would be diagnosed with advanced metastatic incurable disease. They were living terrible um, existences with pain, once that pain, once the, this cancer spread to the bone, there's not much you can do to stop that pain. They were having all kinds of, you know, end stage um, complications, blockage of their kidneys and so on. And once we started using PSA, you saw that the majority of men were now being detected with PSAs that were uh, slightly elevated long before they had symptoms or complications. And the majority of these men 
when they were offered curative intervention, they were being cured from cancer at very good cure rates, you know, 70%, 80%, 90% cure rates. So definitely I am an advocate of screening for prostate cancer. And um, that's what I would advise my patients. Exactly right. And they, they actually later they came back to the table and they, they actually threw that recommendation. And what was interesting is because I've been around you guys a lot, the a lot of the urologists locally and the ones that I heard of told them to, they could go fly a kite with that, even if some of the US ones that I've encountered, because they, they have so much confidence. The urologists had so much confidence in that. Now, you you mentioned something. I remember when we were training, this is two million years ago, medical school now. It was the age of 40 was a magic number. I know that uh, what I've encountered in the is that not only this, but most cancers, it's so complex that it's a variety of factors that you take into account. I think what you are alluding to, really, the genetic testing that and all this fancy kind of testing that we can do now, especially, and with all this, quite frankly, this modern era with modern computing and so on. So the 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 the, the forty five and that age group that we let's say locally then, because I think actually in the United States that number could be fifty or fifty five if I'm not mistaken. But how did we come to that? You think, and if you could elaborate a little bit on that. Right. So so you know various jurisdictions have different recommendations there is no worldwide recommendation and i think that's reasonable because there are many factors that go into your risk of prostate cancer there are at least three what we call non-modifiable factors number one is genetics so if you've got a, a, a family member who's had prostate cancer um you're at two to three times increased risk. And if you have more than one, you're up to seven times increased risk of developing a prostate cancer. Number two is age. So as you get older, the risk increases. It's fairly uncommon to rare, I would say, to find a cancer in the early 40s, but it's not unheard of. I've seen it. And the third thing is race. So genetics, age, and race. If you're of black descent, Hispanic descent and um, one or two other um, races, you are at very high risk for having a prostate cancer. So when we look at the demographics of each individual country, um, Scandinavian countries are high, um, some, so, certain subsets of Jewish populations, uh, I'm going to struggle to pronounce that, Askenazi Jews or something, yes, yes. Uh, they, they are at higher risk. So persons who are of these subsets we recommend 45 years of age. If you've had a proven genetic test, which means you're now as high as seven times risk, we suggest 40 years of age. Um, if you're from a Scandinavian country, if you're from African descent, 45 years of age. Um, whereas if you're from another European country, like um, if you're from Holland and you're uh, Caucasian, we would say 50 right? So they're all based on very well-studied um, demographics for each individual country, each individual race, and so it's pretty much um, tailor-suited to, 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 to each region. And it does change even how often, so in the UK or in Europe, for example, your first test, if it's negative, if it's less than a certain number, like 1.5, and they would say you can skip one or two years or three years. 
and then do it again at, at 50 or 55. Um, so, it, you know, you have to pay attention to the recommendations and they change from year to year. Not true, not true. So the, the, if we do our PSA, it's elevated, the number of four, it's a, it's a number that ranges between zero and four, I should say. And in this, in my patient, as I mentioned, I think it's almost up, up above 10, know that for sure. And it stayed up there a couple of times. And then they elected to do something. Is there a magic number other than just being above four that, for example, somebody like me in my position to look at or or even a patient to look at? Um... Right, right. Yes, four is a good general number. Um, as you get older, the PSA does naturally increase. And so we've got age and race-specific tables. Um, so oh. if, you're, if you're in your 60s, it's allowed to go, you know, 4.5, 5.5. If you're in your 70s, it's allowed to go up to 6.5. But this is, um, uh, Ryan, this is probably best interpreted with a lot of clinical experience, That's true. That's true. you know. And um, I would say for our primary care um, physicians who do a great job with screening and they're always alert as soon as they think that something is not right, I would say it's reasonable to, once it's above four, um, seek some expert help because we do have a lot of things that we can use. Um, and and it also goes, before I move on, it goes the other way too. If I have a patient who's 42, 43, and his PSA is three, then I'm going to um, probably look into it a, a bit more. He might be someone that I'll send for a, a MRI and see if there's something that's un, unusual there. Uh, or I may retest him in a short bit of time, three to six months. Um, because you know, at forty-two, forty-three, three is a bit, three is a bit, um, is a bit on the on the high side for me. So I would keep a close eye or send him for an MRI. So yeah. it, it it takes a great deal of clinical expert expertise, know-how, and um, knowing what all the options available to you are to interpret some of these, some of these things. Exactly, right. because uh, I mean, we, I always feel like I'm bothering you guys because in above the four, I don't really <laughs> hesitate. And I know that some of the more experienced family physicians, they tend to keep them and all they're going to do is repeat them. You know, sometimes you feel like cute when we send it to you and you just repeat it, it goes down and say, oh, look at that. And yeah. you know, you know the, the, the patient, you know, it's private practice. And I'm, sometimes. I'm, I'm... Go ahead. Yeah, so, so you know, on on our end, but at the same time, I do think that if you look at it, the way I look at it, I, my duty is to the patient. I'm not an expert in this. I have been exposed to it, but it doesn't matter. Let let you guys make a decision, and yeah. and we take it from there. Absolutely. The, the 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 key point here is that the PSA is not an index of um aggressiveness of a cancer. It is, or even, or even probability of a cancer. Some might say it's really a decision-making tool. So, if the PSA is this, if it's doing this in the context of this patient, we should look further, or we should not look further. So right. that's how I use it. It's a, simply a decision-making tool, and people, patients will say, "Boy, last year my PSA was six, and this year at five, so I'm doing better, right, doc?" I say, well, that's not how I look at it. Um, it is above 
this number, I'm not comfortable with that. So we need to do further. We need to do a biopsy. Or um, it was this number. We did a biopsy. It was negative. It's in the same number, same region. It's not increasing. It's decreasing. I'm happy to watch it. Or, you know, um, I think we should look again. Or I think we should do an MRI. Um, so again, it the, the bottom line is you have to use it as a decision-making tool. When should you pull the trigger? When do you look further? Or when do you do something else? Um, uh, rather than use it as an as an index of of probability of a cancer, or even aggressiveness of cancer, because that's not what it's really meant for. The, the patient mentioned as well, he had to have his biopsy done. That was a recommendation. And he said the person that did biopsy was the radiologist. Is that the common way? So the urologists typically, they don't do them, or do you have any preference as to? So, so I do my own biopsies. Um, it's really personal preference. There are some okay. urologists who would send the patient to the radiologist to do it. Um, but in training, uh, in Jamaica, historically and traditionally, the urologists do their own biopsies. Reason being that from, from you know, residency days in training, we're exposed to a lot of biopsies. We've, we've done hundreds or thousands of them by the time we're done. And everybody has their own technique that they've specialized. They've got something in particular they think works for them. Um, also, I find that the urologists are really good at the local block. Um, so we do, we give a local anesthetic um, block, just similar to, for those who are laymen who might be listening, similar to when you go to the dentist and you just get an injection into the nerve and the doctor goes ahead and does his what he has to do, you don't feel anything other than that first that first injection. It's the same thing with the um, how urologists approach it. We give a transrectal injection, and you just feel a little mosquito bite in the rectal area. Um, one sharp mosquito bite that lasts half a second, and then a burning, and you don't feel anything else. And we really perfected that technique. I must say, my colleagues are quite good at this. Um, some radiologists I know will sedate the patient because they may not have ex been exposed to that during training. Um, also, we've got a template and a, a, and a very specific way how we are recognized it needs to be done. A minimum number of core readings, and sometimes that's, that means samples or, or specimens have been taken. And sometimes I see biopsy reports where less than the appropriate number have been taken. So it's really a number of a matter of probability. There is a cancer there. You can't see it with the, with the ultrasound when you're doing it. So there's a chance you miss it. The more you take, the higher the chance that you catch that cancer. Um, so sometimes it's the, the, the biopsy is underrepresented and not enough samples are done. When the radiologists do a good job, is in this day and age, we are doing MRI um, fusion or cognitive biopsies, which means that the radiologists look at the MRI and they say, this is a high spot, a high suspicion area. Now they do the MRI at a different venue and then they send us the report. For the, the urologist to then look at that, we have to imagine in our brain, this is what he saw. This is what I'm seeing on ultrasound and fuse the two things in our mind, which is what we call cognitive or using your brain 
to identify what they saw on the MRI. A little less than ideal, um, the radiologists are more and more doing what's called a fusion. It's not available in Jamaica now, um, but soon, I'm sure. So I would send my patients overseas, especially if the MRI picks up a small lesion. Um, I'll, I'll advise them to go get it done, those who have the means. And so the, the MRI fuses it with a template and using a lot of you know high-tech stuff, mm -hmm. they're able to actually, the radiologists are able to detect that. And even and, and where they're doing a lot of them in the States, the urologists are part of this too. So it's sort of a team effort. So in those situations, I would say the radiologists are really good at doing that. And our guys here are good at doing it cognitively, um, our radiologists. So that's without the fancy um, sophisticated equipment, they're targeting small lesions. So if an MRI comes back and there's a small area, and I think I might have a hard time hitting that, I'll ask our radiology colleagues to give us a hand with that. Excellent. So it sounds like MR is being slowly, I don't want to say supplanted ultrasound, but certainly more and more being used. Yeah, as a it's, tool. it's being into it's integrating, definitely. Excellent. And um there are times when I would say it's a it's the only option that I would have offer a patient to so someone who's had a biopsy and it's negative, but um there's still a high index of suspicion. The PSA is climbing or I'm feeling something that this isn't right, I'll send them for an MRI. I won't just keep doing biopsies ad infinitum, you know, because the biopsy does have an inherent risk of sepsis or a really bad infection. Three out of 100 people, every time you do a biopsy, 3% can end up in hospital, you know, and usually it's self-limiting, which means you just have to give them antibiotics, but there's a cost associated with that, time off from work, and very rarely, it, you can get very ill, end up in the ICU, and there's a very small fatality rate with that. Um, rare, but can happen. So it's not an innocuous procedure, you know. And if you've got a technology that can help, I say, why not use it? Exactly right. You know, it. In terms of to go back to this gentleman I mentioned, they when they, they did the biopsy and they found cancer. And we need to say that that was confined to the prostate, which I'm sure we hopefully we can get to. <laughs> We've been here a little while now. But, and what was put in me, I'll say to you, because he was, again, an uh, Israel gentleman that has his visa, is able to travel, that he could do robotic surgery. That was the one he could do. Open prostatectomy. And I, I don't know if they, I think they suggested later on the radiation, if I'm, I hope I'm not getting this wrong. I think those were the three because of this. I don't think this particular urologist offered the minimally invasive version of the, I think you can do that in, on, in, when taken out the prostate. So basically when they put this to him, because as a robot, the, the time in hospital, even though the cost was certainly significant, he had health insurance, has health insurance, and he was able to, he thought about it deeply, it was basically, literally, I'd say, day in hospital, and our good colleague at University of Miami did him, and basically, the gentleman quite fine. Now, that, in terms of what I just mentioned, what, 
I, I don't think as of now we offer robotic surgery. But if you could just talk a little bit about the, the treatment options at this point for such a patient. Sure. So the first thing to determine is, is this curable disease or is it incurable? Right. When you are diagnosed with a prostate cancer, we will send you to do um, staging uh, um, investigation, which would include a CT or a bone scan. And um, right now, the hot, the hot um, this, um, tool that we use is the PSMA PET scan, which is very, very good at determining um, that you've got cancer that is spread outside the prostate, in which case it's not curable or it's all confined. So we'll use various tests to tell us the various things, the MRI as well. Um, now, if you have curable disease, that means it has not spread beyond the prostate. Or if there is a small amount of spread, more and more we're getting aggressive. And traditionally, once it was outside the prostate, we said it's incurable. But now we're finding out that patients... Um, do quite well when there's a small amount of disease outside the prostate. We still remove the prostate and try to cure it. So what the, the ways that we can offer cure are prostatectomy, which is surgical removal of the prostate. That can be done either robotically or laparoscopically or by an open procedure. Um, which is called a radical prostatectomy. Not the open prostatectomy, but radical prostatectomy. That's option one, surgery. Option number two is radiation, be it by internal or external radiation. I won't get, I won't get into the nuances of those, but let's just say radiation. Um, the third way of managing curable disease is to do nothing at all and nothing in a parenthesis or commas, because it's not really nothing. We're quite active in what we do. But the point is, we don't offer an intervention. Um, so so let me backtrack. The, a large number of patients who have curable disease have low-grade cancer, which means that it's you probably will live with this cancer, and um, it will not affect you. You will die from something else um, and not this cancer. You'll die with it and not from it. So a large number of cancers are low, non-aggressive. And so for those patients, we offer active surveillance, which means we keep an eye on it. We do a blood test every three to six months. We check the prostate. And roughly 27% of patients only who are on active surveillance will go on to have an upstaging of their cancer. The cancer becomes more aggressive while we watch it. And the whole point is we catch it with enough time that we can still offer a cure, it's still curable. The point of that is that they don't have the side effects and complications of radiation and surgery. If this cancer is not going to kill you or make you ill, then why should we treat it and uh, subject you to the side effects of radiation and surgery? So a lot of patients are being offered active surveillance. The fourth way of managing it in this day and age is called what we call focal therapy, which is to freeze it or um, uh, use radiation or so on. This is not the standard of care at this point in time because we still believe that the cancer is not just one focal part of the prostate that we detect, but the whole prostate is at risk. So this is still experimental therapy. I would say by and large, what we're talking is surgery, radiation, or surveillance.
And as we mentioned, there are various ways of offering surgery, robotic, laparoscopic, open. To this day, the numbers, when we look at the evidence, um, there is no difference in the three things we look at. The cure rate, that means how many people have a recurrence of cancer after surgery. There's no difference between robotic, laparoscopic, and open. In terms of the functional outcomes, which is erections and your ability to hold up your urine, those are the three things that are most affected by surgery. Cure rate, infection, uh, uh, incontinence, urinary incontinence, or your ability to hold up the urine, and your erections. Essentially the same, no matter which way you do it. What we have noticed, though, is what makes a difference is the experience of the surgeon. And once you've hit a certain number of cases, your complication rate drops off significantly. That number has been proven to be about 250 to 300 cases. So it matters not whether your surgeon is an open surgeon or a laparoscopic surgeon or a robotic surgeon. It's the experience that they have that, that matters more. Um, having said that, um, I think that the data is still a bit immature. Robotics has been around for about 10 years, 15 years, so we should be seeing long-term um, uh, uh, data that shows either it's better or not. But the three things we look at, the data has not shown a difference. Um, the number where it is um, an improvement over open surgery is the duration of the surgery. It's about an hour shorter. The blood loss is definitely less. Um, and the transfusion rate, the, the chance of needing, needing transfusion is less than with open. Um, however, um, the amount of time in hospital is about a day, whereas with open is about two days, so you save a day there. Um, the rest of the things are essentially um, very comparable. You know, it's being pushed um, hard in the States, and most prostatectomies are being done robotically now. Um, for a number of reasons. Um, but in our setting in Little Jamaica, um, we've got open and there's laparoscopic experience as well. Um, again, it's essentially comparable. Um, the laparoscopic is a bit more difficult to do. It's kind of like operating with arthritic um, wrists. So it is a longer inherently than open. The, the, the surgery is, um, if you look at the large number of, of, of um, cases done worldwide, um, inherently, it's about an hour to two longer, um, but the blood loss is less. Um, and uh, similar to, to robotic, the patients tend to go home a bit earlier. But because it is longer, there are increased anesthetic risks and so on, and complications associated with laparoscopic. I think we'll find that most places in the world are not laparoscopic anymore, but it is uh, still available in other jurisdictions. I never realized that. I suppose we should say the laparoscopic the, the, the procedure is done if people can imagine. We call it the keyhole surgery, where you don't make these small puncture wounds through these little instruments, and anybody can go and Google that. It's really quite wonderful initially with some things in general surgery, I would say, but you're saying in, 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 for this procedure, not really so much involved then. It's a really... Right. It's technically quite challenging. Um, and due to that, it takes longer. And the longer you're asleep is the longer the complications from anesthesia, blood flow to other organs and so on. 
So, you know, other countries where robotics are widely available, um, laparoscopic has taken a significant downturn in in its use. Um, it's really uh, mostly being used in third worlds, developing countries at this point in time. Um, and again, the point I want to make is that it matters not how it is done. It is most important is the experience of the surgeon. You know, so the in terms of the although we won't go too deep into that, radiation is available locally as well. Absolutely, yes, yes, yes. Um, it's we've really got a fantastic robotic. Um, sorry, our, um, our radiation uh, service um, offered at Saint Joseph Hospital and also privately. There's internal radiation um, on, uh, on on Ripon Road, so it's being offered and it's. Essentially, if you look at the cure rate between uh, um, surgery and radiation, it's essentially the same. Um, the same number of patients will have a recurrence um, and the same number of patients will have a cure, whether it's done by surgery or by radiation. Um, where it differs is in the side effects. So with radiation, you are less likely to develop urinary incontinence. It's fairly uncommon. Whereas with surgery, roughly three out of 10 people after surgery will have incontinence in the first year, but the majority of them get dry and are, are, are better and happy by the end of a year. Uh, whereas with radiation, it's fairly uncommon to have incontinence, but they still off of, um, suffer erectile dysfunction at roughly the same rate as those patients who have surgery. Um, where radiation uh, is inferior to surgery in terms of side effects is you do have a certain amount of irritable bowel, irritable bladder symptoms where you don't have with surgery. So you may uh, pee often or have the stool often or have pain with that. Down the road, you can have blood in the stool or blood in the urine that can be difficult to treat. Um, you can have uh, rarely an, an opening between the bladder and bowel and a communication between those systems that we need surgery to fix. Um, but, you know, the, the side effect profiles are different. Um, but the main thing is cancer cure, essentially the same. If you look at aggressiveness versus if you're comparing apples to apples, so a medium-grade cancer uh, done either way, the cure rate is about the same. A very aggressive, high-risk cancer done either way, the cure rate is the same. We, we're saying essential that it, it things are, seems as if we have a lot of offerings here, and I don't know if you can answer this, way. it just came to me when you were speaking, our experience locally versus international results, do they compare based on what you have any experience or any knowledge of that? In terms yeah, of so so we prostate cancers, as you know, Ryan, it's very common in Jamaica. One of the highest incidences in the world, something like 78 patients per 100,000 in Jamaica, right, per year is being discovered. So if you, if you look at a population of 3 million, that means that's Jamaica, that means roughly 2,300 patients develop prostate cancer all right that's a, a, a lot of people that's a lot so we've got experience with prostate cancer and we've got experience with aggressive prostate cancer our 
men develop a more lethal form of it at a younger age. We develop metastatic disease more common than our white counterparts in other countries. So our urologists are quite um, uh, um, experienced with prostate cancer. And when we operate, we see the aggressive, very aggressive form. So um, I would say that. And when, when a lot of our urologists have also trained in different spheres, so we've got wide level areas of, of, of diverse um, experience and exposure. Um, I myself trained in Australia. We've got urologists who train in UK, the United States, Canada, all over. So we've we've seen um, different different um, modalities of treatment. We've seen different um, types of prostate cancer. We where we probably are lacking is in the publication of our um, surgical experience. I think your question basically was how are our results after curative intent radiation and surgery and um, i don't know of any good set of data that shows a large amount of 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 experience be it observational retrospective data um, or even prospective data that compares our results in a large database to what's happening overseas but i will tell you um sort of um, armchair observation yeah. is that my experience of seeing working in large clinics at KPH is that our cure rates are comparable to um, what we come to accept as a gold standard published data in terms of cure rate. Um, it's somewhere between 65 and 90% based on the aggressiveness or grade of your disease and the stage of your disease. And our results make that and our incontinence rates and our erectile dysfunction rates are very similar to that, at least in the public clinics where that, that data is publicly available. What's happening in the private surgeries, I I, I don't know. That data is not being published. Excellent. Well, thank you so much. I think I've bothered you long enough, but I just have one more here. And uh, I tend to ask a lot of people this, and I'll ask you because you've been certainly, this is probably more apt for you than others. You've been exposed to a lot of different countries in your training and otherwise. And our medical here, our medical care here, I should say, is wonderful from a, in my opinion, personal standpoint. These wonderful, brilliant doctors, nurses, and so on support staff. But I think that we could, the product could be better. And so my question is, how do you think we could improve what we what we're doing here locally in terms of healthcare? It can be as it pertains to your area or any area of the country. You have any thoughts on this? Yeah, I, I think of number one, the one of the glaring um the needs that we have is in the public care system. Urology is a very um equipment uh, dependent service. We do a lot of surgery, no cut, keyhole, endoscopic, and so on. And um we do need a certain amount of resources. And so in the public setting, I think that we really need to, to, to dedicate and um, uh, commit uh, the resources, financial and so on, to, to the urology services. Because urology is one of the most high volume services in the public healthcare system. 
um, we see roughly one third of all patients that come through the public clinics go to a urology clinic and one third of the emergency admissions come to the urology floor. So it's a large volume, you know. So we do need um, the commitment to support this, this, this high volume, number one. Number two, um, as we're talking about right now, prostate cancer, we need the things like exactly what you're doing, Ryan. I really commend this effort that that you are demonstrating to get the message out there to change people's minds, to change their attitudes about being examined for prostate illness. Um, get it out there that this is curable disease. There's nothing that's more um, for me that hurtful than to see a man who is suffering when he didn't need to suffer. He didn't need to be there. If they had tested five years ago and their cancer was detected, they're going to have a good chance of cure. I'll tell you, Ryan, the women have been doing it for decades. They go and they do their mammogram, which is a lot more uncomfortable than the prostate exam, yes. right? To have a breast squeeze between two metal hits. Yes. It's uncomfortable. Yes. It's even painful. And women have been leading the way for far too long. Women are the mothers, the wives, they're the matriarchs, and they subject themselves to this to make sure what that they are healthy so they can be there for their children, for their husbands, and men, we are failing, my brothers, let me <laughs> tell you. We are not living up to our part. We're supposed to be the masculine ones, the strong ones who lead the way, and we are not leading the way. We <laughs> are the way in the back because we're afraid of what? of finding out what's there. So many men tell me, you know, better I don't know, better I don't know. I'm happier than that, like that. You're not going to be happier like that because unfortunately, prostate cancer is a slow cancer. And when it metastasizes, you don't have a Hollywood ending. You didn't live your life and then one day you wake up and you're no more. No, men suffer with this for years. They've got cancer that spreads to the bone and it's painful and it's hard to treat and they've got spinal cord compression which means you wake up and you can't walk and that never happens again you're a burden to your family you're a burden to yourself you can't provide and i know jamaican men are very masculine and we don't want this to happen so i say guys let us take a page from the women's books and go take care of ourselves so we can take care of our family. So that's the other thing that I want to see changed is more public um, uh, relations, more public um, information and the, the distribution of information, exactly like what you're doing here, Ryan. That's what I want to see. Um, and and the, I, I, the, I could go on forever, I can mm -hmm. tell you. But I, I don't want to overwhelm everybody. We've, we've said a lot tonight. That's my take-home point is this this thing is very curable once detected early, and it is a shame when it's not. So, you know, um, let's do our part, guys. And um, I, I strongly advocate that you, you, you discuss with your doctor, your primary care doctor, your urologist, whether you should have a prostate cancer screen, whether it would benefit you. And um, if you if you are a candidate, do consider it. Well, I thank you, sir. Particularly with that data, I hit the end button here. <laughs>